place for people to write about what makes the human mind so special, perhaps the most popular answer is that it has made or provided us the capability of language and logic. And uh, of course, these are language and logic are very, very powerful tools. The ability to narrate our life and to add concepts to our life allows us to not only tell the stories of our existence, but to, in many ways, help us learn from experience and help guide us and uh, through life, allows us to self-regulate. We have a little inner chatter that tells us what things we shouldn't do and can do, a little interjected parent voice in there. And uh, when things go awry in life, very often we rely on this narrating voice in the mind to help us make sense of what's happened. So, for example, if I was a saxophonist, I'm coming up with a ridiculous... My dad loved the saxophone. I've never particularly uh, had any experience with it. So, But if I were a saxophonist and I had a jazz band, say, it was an avant-garde jazz band, and uh, making the saxophone single for you, uh, this is all this example is just an excuse for me to make weird little sax things with my hands. Um, and I released an album and the album got poor reviews. I could mitigate the experience by adding a story about it. I could say, well, who cares what critics think? Or, well, maybe the critics didn't like it, but my fans of the band like it. Or, it doesn't matter what a people think about a first album. There are many more albums I could do. Or, I could think well, I'll take into consideration the criticism and I'll do something a little bit different. I'll learn from the experience. So, all I'm doing in each of those cases to mitigate the disappointment of the negative reviews is I'm re-narrating the experience, telling it, adding a few concepts, such as who cares what critics think or my fans like it or there's always more opportunities or etc., so I'm adding a couple of concepts to help make the experience of getting the negative reviews easier. And we do this all the time. When we get criticized, setbacks in careers, money problems, uh, all kinds of difficulties, we rely on the narrating mind to spin the story in a way that helps mitigate the pain makes us feel empowered to change the outcome or at least learn so that we believe it won't happen again. And that's why we like the uh, conceptual mind. In fact, we live in the left hemisphere of the brain. It's the dominant hemisphere. And that's why the dominant hemisphere loves its products, which is language and logic and concepts. The left hemisphere of the brain is the optimistic Hemisphere. If you have a stroke in your right hemisphere, the left hemisphere, when left to rule over the brain, you don't lose any of your ability to communicate, you don't lose any of your ability to tell stories, but you become completely optimistic all the time. In fact, there was a famous case of a judge who had a stroke in his right hemisphere, and he immediately let everybody who went before him he found them all innocent because he 
the left hemisphere of the brain believes that any problem, any situation in life can be solved. We just need to think about it enough. That's what the cognitive mind, the conceptual mind, deeply believes. If we can just find the hidden meaning, the hidden lesson, the way to spin the story in a satisfactory way that we'll never have to suffer, we'll never experience pain, we'll never have to go through any disappointments. And so it, can, it creates a quest for what certain philosophers call the transcendent signifier, the perfect way to think about our lives in a way so that we'll never have to experience disappointment. Now, of course, all of this leaves out the fact that we have two hemispheres of our brain. In the right hemisphere, it's working behind the scenes of awareness, and its dominant agenda is to connect meaningfully, securely with other people. It doesn't have language, and it speaks to us through the body and through emotional states in the mind, somatic emotions, felt emotions in the body, and mo moods of the mind. If something disappointing happens in your career, the left hemisphere, if you can't figure something out, say, your left hemisphere will punish you by creating obsessive thoughts and by creating stress. And some of the limbs will create stress in the back of your neck and the shoulders and the muscles, maybe even a little tightness in the jaw. That's the way your left hemisphere lets you know there's something wrong. Mostly, though, it works by continuing obsessive ideation, spiraling thoughts. That's its way of telling you that it's dissatisfied, that it feels unhappy with the narratives that we're explaining our life with. But what about the right hemisphere? When we feel disconnected from people, when we feel we're not emotionally deeply united, we don't feel we're part of the tribe, we're part of uh, integrated with close friends. The right hemisphere is set to let us know something's wrong by creating negative emotional states. And it rewards us when we connect well with people by creating positive emotional states. For example, if we go through a breakup, then the right hemisphere of the brain will uh, create sadness, grief. If we do something that harms other people, that puts ourselves above others, we might feel guilt. Especially if we're caught doing that, we might feel embarrassment. If we do something that benefits the tribe to which we're connected, we'll feel feelings of uplift and security. Likewise, if we connect well with our friends or a loved one, we'll feel a sense of security and a sense of joy. So that's the benefit of connecting. And the most powerfully uh, uh, triggering parts of the brain are involved in these uh, rewards and punishments. When we do something or we experience a separation or a disconnection with people we care about, there's a part of your brain, my brain, called the uh, anterior cingulate cortex of the right hemisphere, which is the part of the brain that 
alerts us to pain in the body, but it's also the part that alerts us to sadness, grief, and despair, and loneliness when we feel abandoned by someone, or when an attachment figure, somebody we care about deeply goes away, is dies, someone we depended on is no longer available to us. On the other hand, when we connect well with someone, the same part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, which triggers the release of dopamine, is also the part of the brain that rewards you for securing food, for shopping and buying something. And uh, that's why very often when we go through disappointing setbacks, we try to reward ourselves or make up the difference by binging on food or buying. It triggers the release of dopamine. Unfortunately, the dopamine that you get from shopping and eating or doing cocaine, it eventually passes. When we connect well, not only do we get an uplift of dopamine that continues to be released by the nucleus accumbens, but it's followed up by a triggering of serotonin. So the feeling of joy is much greater and sustained, and then eventually it's joined by another neurotransmitter called oxytocin. So it's a neural state that can keep on giving. Now, what happens though in life when we go through an interpersonal setback, we experience an abandonment? Very often, we don't want to feel the emotional pain, the grief, the sorrow, the tight stomach, the hollow chest, the contraction in the throat, the heaviness in the mind. And so the left hemisphere, used to figuring and solving everything and spinning a narrative, jumps in and it creates a smokescreen, a diversion, an attempt to mitigate the pain, to keep us from feeling sad by trying to figure out what went wrong. So, for example, go through a breakup, instead of feeling the sadness, the remorse, the disappointment, which is largely physical, but that's the way the right hemisphere speaks to us, largely a heaviness in the mind, the left hemisphere will try to figure out how dare they, why did they do that, or why did I do this, what should have done, been different. In other words, we try to tell a story so that we don't feel vulnerable, we don't feel it can happen again, so that we don't have to feel the grief, the loss, the sadness. A lot of people I work with in mentoring have had really traumatic, wounding abandonments by one caretaker or another. And rather than feel the grief which is necessary, the sadness, the felt sense of disappointment, they, for years and years and years and years, live in the story of how it should have been otherwise. And each time that caretaker who's abandoning a father or a mother comes back, they put aside the wisdom that that grief could have informed them, and they go in with their hopes that this will be the time the father pays attention, the mother is unconditionally loving, the sibling is caring, and each time they're re-wounded because there's never this sitting, processing the grief. The great John Bowlby, father of attachment theory, 
posited that without grieving, the right hemisphere maintains old inner working models of the world and it never learns that an attachment figure has gone away, that the person we relied upon is no longer available. And so we keep acting as if the person is not abandoning and then we re-wound ourselves again and again and again and again and again. So the living in the story of how they should have been different, this shouldn't have happened, I sh they should have taken care of me. While that story might very well be true, what it does is it suppresses and represses the pain that needs to be felt for us to move on in our lives and take care of ourselves. The longer we stay in this storytelling, figuring it out mind, the worse and worse the underlying pain becomes. It doesn't just sit there and not grow any worse. In fact, it becomes increasingly difficult to open to. And so, eventually, what happens is the woundings pile up in life, and it creates this extremely, what's known as dysphoric experience, which can create panic attacks, or what Freud called signal anxiety. When we start to feel the wounded child in us rise up in a situation where we're reminded of the abandonment, the disappointment with other people who have mistreated us, when we don't allow ourselves to feel that, then we rely on addictive strategies to push those feelings down. What addictive strategies do we use to push away our experiences of abandonment? Well, I said a, a couple of them, we might shop. I have an abnormal collection of hoodies more than I'll ever need. When I was working at a, a job that I hated and felt deeply disconnected to the people I worked with and a sense of remorse, I for a while got into the habit of, of pushing down that feeling of grieving not being connected with the people I wanted to be by this was in the 90s, shopping for CDs. I wound up with an absurdly large collection of CDs. Those are actually things that play music, not... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, signal anxiety, the rising of those feelings that we haven't felt, creates insomnia increasing busyness in our life, the more we can't settle down and stop, is a, is a great sign that there's a repressed feeling or emotion or memory that's beginning to arise that we're desperately trying to avoid. The more that we can't stop, the more we have to constantly be busy the more we have to constantly pick up obligations, responsibilities, to-dos as a way to give ourselves permission to never go into the body because that's where the wounded child and the repressed makes itself known. In the tight stomach, the hollow chest, 
the strangled feeling in the throat. Also, very often, if it really starts to arise, we'll also choose avoidance strategies, we'll isolate, we'll hide. Because in interacting with people, the repressed that we try to not let other people know we're feeling, that vulnerable, wounded child starts to signal itself through the cracks in our voice, the sadness in our eyes. We can control with the left hemisphere, the narrative mind can control the words we say, but it cannot control the tone of voice. It can't control some of the facial expressions. It can't control some of the muscle move, micro-muscle movements in the face. So we know intuitively that we're giving ourselves away, that it's seeping through the sadness, the unfelt anger, the unfelt disappointment, is seeking to be known. So as a desperate move, people will then not only choose addictive behaviors, but they'll also eventually just avoid other people. They'll isolate. And sometimes we'll have insomnia because the mind will spin out trying to, to tell the story of the abandonment, the rejection, the interpersonal disappointment, the, the times where somebody or some group we trusted has failed us. We'll try to figure it out and solve it and re-spin it again and again and again in the hopes that the conceptual mind can come up with the perfect way to say it so that we don't have to feel what's waiting for attendance in the body and in the emotional mind. When people die, we go up and we try to solve their grief with nice little platitudes. And when people go through breakups, we try to do the same. They're more fish in the sea. Don't worry, you'll find somebody else. It's again, with other people we do what we try to do constantly is try to find the perfect thing to say that will make all the processing that needs to be done go away. So part of the work we're doing here is not just to develop a beautiful inner peace, but is to also, that's the role of the concentration part of our meditation, to develop inner ease. But we're also trying to learn how to attend to all those wounded feelings that are seeking our attendance. So the good thing is that some people, or many people, think that processing grief or sadness or disappointment is, if we allow it in, it'll take us over, it'll consume us. My grief is so great that if I even give it an inch, it'll want a mile. And actually the point of spiritual practice is to create an outlet that is a half an hour a day so that it doesn't overwhelm us it doesn't flood us it doesn't take over our life so that we can go to work and can interact with others and can do our art and we can have the things we want we can go to you know uh, our, join our friends and do whatever we want so we have an outlet for it if we try to constantly never have an outlet for the grief, for the wounded child that needs attendance, then what happens is it starts creeping out anywhere it can to get our attention and the attention of other people. But if we 
set an agenda, a time to meet with it and be with it and hold it and allow it to come up, then it actually becomes very quickly, in my experience with the people I've worked with and in my own journey, it becomes something that is very content to sit in the background because it knows it will have its time to be with us. It will get attended to. The first way we do this is we welcome it. We might hold an image of the painful experience where we've, we've noted the mind started to churn up stories or an image that conjures up some sense of disappointment in life. We hold the image, don't tell the story, and then we just ask what needs to be felt or how does it feel to be left, to be, to be not connected, to be separated, to be misunderstood, to not be seen, to not be appreciated. How does it feel? And we ask and we encourage the feelings to come up. In my case, it's almost invariably first in the stomach, the, an area just above my belly button. I feel it first. And then I also feel kind of a gathering right here in the sternum. And I also can feel tightness in the micro-muscles around the eyes. Then what we can do is we can soften the experience by breathing into it. So we feel the tightness in the belly, and very often the, the real underlying poison that needs to be attended to can feel like waves of contraction moving up from the stomach to the chest, or like a blow, a kick to the to some area in the body, and so we soften it by breathing into it, creating uh, a, the beginnings of a safe container. We can relax the shoulders and relax the parts of the body that resist allowing ourselves to have an emotional experience. While we want to feel the emotions in the torso, the chest, the, the throat, and the face, very often muscles in the arms will tighten. They don't want, the left hemisphere is triggering this resistance. I don't want to feel this way. So the jaw might lock. So we relax those muscles. We stop the physical war that's going on. We can send thoughts of metta, compassion. It's okay. May I be happy. May I be peaceful towards this experience that's seeking our attention. One strategy I've found that's really useful is uh, to seek places that are soothing, that help us create an external safe contain container to feel. So, I, I told this story frequently because it's one of my favorite of this guy I knew who was grieving the loss of somebody that he was... Uh, essentially... Uh, engaged in, and um, he couldn't grieve or cry in his apartment because his apartment didn't create enough of a safe container. He felt that the, the grief would overwhelm him. So what he did is he went to a beach where he could feel the sun, feel the waves, feel the warmth, and that created the safe container that allowed him to feel the emotional state that needed his attendance. 
So these are, it's really important, as one of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, says, to create a safe container, whether softening the shoulders, softening the expression in the body, creating soothing sensations, sending metta, so that we can be with what needs to be felt. If we don't do that, then we can re-traumatize ourselves and try to avoid feeling and attending to what needs our love and our compassion. So the container is essential. And we, it's, I wish I could give each of us, you know, a, um, a recipe, but, but in my experience, everyone has to develop their own safe container. For some people, it could be lying down in a bed. For some people, it could be sitting in a meditation hall. For some people, it might be sitting in a park by the water. For some people, it might be uh, riding their bike. Just creating soothing sensations enough where we can be with that which we've been running from. Finally, of course, a major role in the in the overall processing is giving grief and disappointment and sadness a voice, expressing it, finding the ultimate safe container is the compassionate friend, therapist teacher, the person that you work with or you befriend who doesn't try to fall into the tendency to fix and solve and try to get rid of our sadness by saying the perfect thing, reduplicating the tendency of the left hemisphere to try to get rid of our emotions, but instead just helps us create a safe observance of the emotions that need to be felt. And then we can use our art and our creativity as well as a way to express it. A friend of mine I've known for about a decade has allowed himself to process his rage at his parents who um, did some pretty abominable stuff. He uh, allows himself to, to process that rage not just by talking about it, with friends and at 12-step groups, but he also writes these really over-the-top horror stories where everybody dies, and he sings death metal. How wonderful. <laughs> How absolutely wonderful. That's, like, awesome. That's taking this energy and using it and giving it a voice rather than stuffing it and running from it. So many of us have you know, experienced abandonments and been told by the people who abandoned or uh, that we're not allowed to feel this emotion, anger, sadness, disappointment. So we reduplicate the woundings again and again and again when we run from those experiences. If we can give voice to another through our art, through our creative endeavor, through rather than isolating from others and trying to hide the pain, go into it. Give it voice through acting, through dance, through movement, through singing, through music, through drawing, through art, through blogging. Yes, have your own self-indulgent blog. That's great. Any way you can give voice to it. So, that's tonight's talk.